seen in the moderate heights of the Grand Circle. With these trained on the stage so far down below, she scrutinized each player one by one, an activity she could never resist in concerts. One did not stare at people through binoculars normally, but here, in the concert hall, it was permitted, and if the binoculars strayed to the audience once in a while, who was to notice? The strings were unexceptional, but one of the clarinetists, she noticed, had a remarkable face, high cheekbones, deep-set eyes, and a chin that had been cleaved, surely, by an axe. Her gaze dwelt on him, and she thought of the generations of hardy Icelanders and Danes before them that had laboured to bring forth this type, men and women who scratched a living from the thin soil of upland farms, fishermen who hunted cod in steel-grey waters, women who struggled to keep their children alive on dried fish and oatmeal, and now, at the end of all this effort, a clarinetist. She laid aside the opera glasses and sat back in her seat. It was a perfectly competent orchestra, and they had played the Macan with gusto. But why did people still do Stockhausen? Perhaps it was some sort of statement of cultural sophistication. We may come from Reykjavik, and it may be a small town far from anywhere, but we can at least play Stockhausen as well as the rest of them. She closed her eyes. It was impossible music, really, and it wasn't something a visiting orchestra should inflict on its hosts. For a short while she considered the idea of orchestral courtesy. Certainly one should avoid giving political offence. German orchestras, of course, used to be careful about playing Wagner abroad, at least in some countries, choosing instead German composers who were somewhat more apologetic. This suited Isabel, who disliked Wagner. The Stockhausen was the final item on the program. When at last the conductor had retired and the clapping had died down, not as warm as it might have been, she thought, something to do with Stockhausen, she slipped out of her seat and made her way to the ladies' room. She turned on a tap and scooped water into her mouth. The Usher Hall had nothing so modern as a drinking fountain, and then splashed some on her face. She felt cooler, and now made her way out onto the landing again. It was at this point, though, that Isabel caught sight of her friend Jennifer standing at the bottom of the short flight of stairs that led into the Grand Circle. She hesitated. It was still uncomfortably warm inside but she hadn't seen Jennifer for over a year, and she could hardly walk past without greeting her. Isabel made her way through the crowds. I'm waiting for David, Jennifer said, gesturing towards the grand circle. He lost a contact lens. Would you believe it? And one of the asherettes has lent him a torch to go and look for it under his seat. He lost one on the train through to Glasgow, and now he's done it again. They chatted as the last of the crowd made its way down the stairs behind them. Jennifer, a handsome woman in her early forties, like Isabel, was wearing a red suit on which she had pinned a large gold brooch in the shape of a fox's head. Isabel couldn't help but look at the fox, which had ruby eyes, and seemed to be watching her. Brother Fox, she thought, so like Brother Fox. After a few minutes, Jennifer looked anxiously up the stairs. We should go and see if he needs help, she said irritably. 
It'll be an awful nuisance if he's lost another one. They took a few steps up the short set of stairs and looked down towards the place where they could make out David's back, hunched behind a seat, the light of the torch glinting between the seating. And it was at that moment, as they stood there, that the young man fell from the layer above, silently, wordlessly, arms flailing as if he were trying to fly, or fend off the ground, and then disappeared from view. For a brief moment they stared at each other in mutual disbelief, and then, from below, there came a scream, a woman's voice high-pitched, and then a man shouted, and a door slammed somewhere. Isabel reached forward and seized Jennifer's arm. My God, she said, my God! From where he had been crouching, Jennifer's husband straightened up. What was that? he called to them. What happened? Somebody fell, said Jennifer. She pointed at the upper circle, at the point where the top layer joined the wall. From out there! He fell! They looked at one another again. Now Isabel moved forward to the edge of the circle. There was a brass rail running along the parapet, and she held on to this as she peered over. Below her, slumped over the edge of a seat, his legs twisted over the arms of the neighbouring seats, one foot, she noticed, without a shoe, but stockinged, was the young man. She couldn't see his head, which was down below the level of the seat, but she saw an arm sticking up as if reaching for something, but quite still. Beside him stood two men in evening dress, one of whom had reached forward and was touching him, while the other looked back towards the door. Quickly, one of the men shouted. Hurry! A woman called out something, and a third man ran up the aisle to where the young man lay. He bent down and then began to lift the young man off the seat. Now the head came into view and lolled, as if loosened from the body. Isabel withdrew and looked at Jennifer. We'll have to go down there, she said. We saw what happened. We had better go and tell somebody what we saw. Jennifer nodded. We didn't see much, she said. It was over so quickly. Oh, dear. Isabel saw that her friend was shaking, and she put an arm about her shoulder. That was ghastly, she said. Such a shock. Jennifer closed her eyes. He just came down so quickly. Do you think he's still alive? Did you see? I'm afraid he looked rather badly hurt, said Isabel, thinking it's worse than that. They went downstairs. A small crowd of people had gathered round the door into the stalls, and there was a buzz of conversation. As Isabel and Jennifer drew near, a woman turned to them and said, Somebody fell from the gods. He's in there. Isabel nodded. We saw it happen, she said. We were up there. You saw it, said the woman. You actually saw it? We saw him coming down, said Jennifer. We were in the grand circle. He came down past us. How dreadful, said the woman. To see it. Yes. The woman looked at Isabel with that sudden human intimacy that the witnessing of tragedy permitted. I 
don't know if we should be standing here, Isabel muttered, half to Jennifer, half to the other woman. We'll just get in the way. The other woman drew back. One wants to do something, she said lamely. I do hope that he's all right, said Jennifer, falling all that way. He hit the edge of the circle, you know. It might have broken the fall a bit. No, thought Isabel. It would have made it worse, perhaps. There would be two sets of injuries, the blow from the edge of the circle and injuries on the ground. She looked behind her. There was activity at the front door, and then, against the wall, the flashing blue light of the ambulance outside. We must let them get through, said Jennifer, moving away from the knot of people at the door. The ambulance men will need to get in. They stood back as two men in loose green fatigues hurried past, carrying a folded stretcher. They were not long in coming out, less than a minute it seemed, and then they went past the young man laid out on the stretcher, his arms folded over his chest. Isabel turned away, anxious not to intrude, but she saw his face before she averted her gaze. She saw the halo of tousled dark hair and the fine features undamaged. To be so beautiful, she thought, and now the end. She closed her eyes. She felt raw inside, empty. This poor young man, loved by somebody somewhere, whose world would end this evening, she thought, when the cruel news was broached. All that love invested in a future that would not materialize, ended in a second, in a fall.